Hi everyone, my name is Beth. You can call me B. Welcome to Let's Be Real. Hi, hello again everyone. Um, in today's episode, I want to talk about something near and dear to my heart. And it's something I'm sure a lot of you can also resonate with. A little something called imposter syndrome. What is it? How does it present itself in our behaviors and thought patterns? And what we can do to hopefully overcome it? Also, before I dive in, as always, I will be leaving links in the show notes to some articles on this topic if you're interested in learning more about it. So what exactly is imposter syndrome? Uh, Imposter syndrome is a psychological pattern in which an individual doubts their accomplishments or talents and has a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a quote-unquote fraud. Despite external evidence of their competence, those experiencing this phenomenon remain convinced that they are frauds and do not deserve all they have achieved. Individuals with imposterism incorrectly attribute their success to luck or interpret it as a result of deceiving others into thinking that they are more intelligent than they perceive themselves to be. So, the psychologist who first coined the term in 1978, Pauline Rose Clance and Suzanne Imez, they originally theorized that this um, phenomenon was unique to women. But since then, research shows that anyone can be affected by it. And psychologist Audrey Irvin says that it applies to anyone who isn't able to internalize their own successes. The first scale designated to measure characteristics of imposter phenomenon was designed by Clance in 1985, and it is called the Clance Imposter Phenomenon Scale or CIP scale. I will be linking this scale in the show notes, by the way, if you want to take the test. We can compare scores. I got an 86, which is, is, is not very good. And, um, I mean, trust me to be an overachiever in a test measuring imposter syndrome tendencies, right? Anyway, this scale can be used to determine if characteristics of fear are present and to what extent. The aspects of fear include fear of evaluation, fear of not continuing success, and fear of not being as capable as others. In her 1985 paper, Clance explained that the imposter phenomenon can be distinguished by the following six dimensions. One, the imposter cycle, and I'll explain this briefly later on. Two, the need to be special or the best. Three, characteristics of superman slash superwoman. I'll also be explaining this later. 4. Fear of failure. 5. Denial of ability and discounting praise. And 6. Feeling fear and guilt about success. Okay, so that was pretty straightforward, but what exactly does the imposter cycle look like? The imposter cycle begins with an achievement-related task, like a work or school assignment. Feelings of anxiety, self-doubt, and worry immediately follow. The cycle accounts for two possible reactions that stem from these feelings, over-preparation or procrastination. 
If you respond by procrastination, you will view the successful outcome as a matter of luck. But if you respond with over-preparation, you will view the successful outcome as a result of hard work. The thing is, in the imposter cycle, gaining success through hard work or luck is not interpreted as a matter of true personal ability. This means that it doesn't really matter which mechanism you used to complete the task, procrastination or over-preparation, because in your brain, even if the outcome results in a positive response, the feedback given has no effect on your perception of your personal success. So you basically discount and brush off any positive feedback as not sincere or not truly applicable to you. So this cycle, this sequence of events, serves as a reinforcement, causing the cycle to remain in motion. With every cycle, feelings of perceived fraudulence, self-doubt, depression, and anxiety accumulate. Increased success leads you to intensification of feeling like a fraud. This experience causes you to remain haunted by your lack of perceived personal ability and believing that at any point you could be exposed for who you think you really are keeps the cycle in motion. So how are you doing? Still with me? Raise your hand if you have ever been personally victimized by Dr. Pauline Rose Clance. Uh, needless to say, I feel extremely called out by all of this. And my friends can probably attest to this, but I hate receiving compliments. I always feel so awkward about it. For some reason, I'm better at taking compliments when they're about my appearance rather than um, my abilities. Maybe because it's something that's out of my control, something that I don't have any say over or something that I can observe objectively. If someone says like, oh, nice haircut or that lipstick looks good on you, it's easier for me to just say thank you and move on to those compliments compared with a compliment about a poem or a drawing or whatever. Also, this is neither here nor there, but I remember back in the times before COVID, you know, BC, back when I would still go to pubs on the weekends. One of my favorite things to do when some random guy came up to me and would give me a compliment uh, would be to respond with, thanks, I know. The confused look on their faces would crack me up every single time. But anyway, when someone says that I'm smart or creative or intellectual or whatever, my default reaction would be to deny or downplay it. Like I said this many, many times before, um, if a person says I'm intelligent or whatever, I will reply with something like, oh no, I'm not actually smart. I'm smart passing. I'm just a dumbass with a big vocabulary. But I've been trying to train my thoughts and my internal monologue to stop being so self-deprecating. I think self-deprecating humor, um, jokes at your own expense, are kind of like a defense mechanism. It's like before someone finds out I'm actually not as intelligent as I pretend to be, let me make a joke about it so that if I do get exposed, then I can say, well, I told you so. I did warn you, you know? Anyway, there isn't just one reason for why a person would experience imposter syndrome. Sometimes it's just how your brain is wired, like how some people are more prone to anxiety. Sometimes it's experiences from childhood or your family history, something that made you internalize this belief that in order to be lovable or worthy of love, you have to achieve certain things. 
And sometimes it's external forces like a toxic environment or uh, institutionalized discrimination. Sometimes it's a combination of all the above. So imposter syndrome can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Uh, personally, an example from me, for the longest time I would hesitate to call myself a poet. I still don't really like doing that, to be honest. I would refer to myself as a graphic designer who dabbles in poetry. I feel the same way with the word artist. I feel like I haven't done enough to deserve the title. And I know that it's silly. A poet, by definition, is a person who writes poetry. An artist, by definition, is a person who makes art. Do I write poetry and make art? Yes. So why do I feel like I shouldn't call myself a poet or an artist? You know? According to Valerie Young, who wrote a book on imposter syndrome called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. What a long-ass title, Valerie. There are five patterns or subgroups of people who experience imposter syndrome. These five subgroups are perfectionists, experts, natural geniuses, soloists, and supermen slash women. So perfectionists are pretty self-explanatory. If it isn't perfect, then it's a failure, basically. They often hold themselves to a high standard, and then when they fail to meet that standard, they beat themselves up about it and question their own competence. Experts feel like they need to know every piece of information before they even start a project. They won't apply for a job if they don't meet all the criteria in the posting, and they might be hesitant to ask a question in class or speak up in a meeting at work because they're afraid of looking stupid if they don't already know the answer. Natural geniuses are used to things coming easily for them because they're naturally gifted in certain areas. So when they struggle to accomplish a task in another area of their lives, they assume they're lacking or incompetent. Soloists equate asking for help with weakness or failure. They feel like uh, they have to accomplish tasks all on their own or it doesn't really count. And if they can't handle it by themselves, they're a fraud. Supermen or superwomen push themselves to work harder than those around them to prove that they're not imposters. They feel the need to succeed in all aspects of life, at work, as parents, as partners, and they may feel stressed when they're not accomplishing something. They probably put too much emphasis on accomplishments as a way to measure their self-worth. So personally, I relate to all five of these, but the ones that resonate the most with me are the expert and the natural genius. If I'm not already an expert at something or knowledgeable about something, I will be very tempted to just quit because I hate uh, feeling stupid, basically. When I was a kid, a lot of stuff came easily to me, especially writing. I was good at analyzing and picking stuff apart and then communicating my thoughts on it. I was a natural-born bullshitter, is what I'm trying to say. I could extrapolate and hypothesize like nobody's business. But as I got older, school got harder. I couldn't get away with putting in the minimum effort anymore. So when I started struggling in my studies, I started feeling like a fraud. All this while I thought I was smart, but then my grades started slipping. So my brain was like, well, maybe you're not so smart after all. 
Maybe you were faking it this whole time. And that thinking pattern would follow me into adulthood. And let me tell you, it's really hard to shake off. So is it possible to rewire our brains into healthier thought patterns? I would say it is. The brain is not like some static thing. You can train it and condition it. But it takes time and consistency. So I'll share some brain hacks that have worked for me in the past. They don't work all the time and they might not work for everyone, but hopefully you guys might get some use out of it. So the first brain hack would be to surround yourself with creative or like-minded people who you can look up to. I'm sure you've heard that uh, cliche phrase, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Of course, it's not literal, but there is a lot of truth to that. Your behavior and perception is greatly affected by the behavior of the people in your sphere of influence. So when you're around creative or talented people who are into the same shit as you are, uh, who are doing things you wish you could do, you give yourself permission to behave more like them and, at the same time, more like your ideal self. It's like you're all on the same team or you're all striving for a certain goal. And when you feel comfortable and accepted in a supportive friend group, it's easier to go out on a limb with a risky project or to branch out and learn a new skill from them. Also, if you get into the habit of consulting your friends and peers and asking them for constructive criticism, it's easier for you to see yourself and your work through an objective lens. Sometimes you need that third party to gain a more accurate perspective especially if your brain has this tendency of downplaying and dismissing your accomplishments. Another trick that forces me to sort of reframe my perceptions um, is to make a list of all my accomplishments. No matter how minor or major professional work or passion projects, whatever you've completed or accomplished that made you feel proud, list them all down. I like to use a pen and paper because there's something about being confronted with the physical, tangible proof of your achievements that makes it harder for your brain to say that you're a failure or a fraud. It's like, I have the proof right here, you know? We often compare ourselves to other people in similar industries or jobs, especially on social media. But we forget that what we see from the outside is that person's highlight reel, we're not seeing their whole process. The experimentation, the trial and error, the failures that got them to that point. And when we get into this habit of comparison, we train ourselves to only focus on the negative aspects of our work, on what we did wrong. But when you write down a list and reflect on past projects that have given you a sense of pleasure and satisfaction, that trains your brain to focus on the positive aspects of your work instead on what you did right. And you deserve a treat every now and then. You deserve to feel proud of your work because false humility will get you nowhere. Another thing that really helps is uh, I try to be a more active participant in my own thought patterns. Essentially, I become my own therapist. So instead of just letting the negative thoughts keep flowing and cycling through my brain, you know, like, oh, I'm not good enough. That person is younger than me and way more accomplished. Or I'm not actually that talented, I just got lucky, etc. I try to catch hold of those thoughts, really pause and analyze them. I tell myself, wait, hold on a second. 
What are you thinking right now? Are those thoughts in any way helpful or constructive? Then why are you thinking them? What's the use? What's the point? And then I go a step further and ask myself, would I say these unkind things to my best friend? No? Then why am I saying these things to myself? If my friend or loved one was downplaying their accomplishments in front of me, what would I say to them? How would I encourage them or put their doubts to rest? And then apply it to yourself. Treat yourself the way you would treat your best friend. Talk to yourself the way you would talk to a loved one. Cut yourself some slack. Be kinder and more compassionate with yourself. Mistakes are not the end of the world. Mistakes are merely proof that you're human. Of course, sometimes you slip up and forget. Sometimes you relapse because you're too emotionally drained or tired to act as your own shrink. And these are the times when it's so important to have a good support system, like how I mentioned before. Having a close friend or mentor or confidant that you can vent to is so helpful for your mental health. Because even if you don't fix the problem, you will still feel better just by talking it out. And lastly, fake it till you make it. So you feel like a fraud half of the time. You don't know what the fuck you're doing. You're just winging it. Surprise, so is everyone else. While researching this topic, I read that a study done in 2011 suggests that up to 70% of people experience imposter feelings at some point in their lives. The only difference between you and a so-called successful person is you live in your own head and they live in theirs. So maybe they have their own issues with self-doubt and imposter syndrome. Maybe they don't. But the reality is you will never know. So don't assume you're the only one feeling it. Just because you can't see their inner turmoil doesn't mean they've never experienced it. Okay, so you feel like you're role-playing or pretending to be better than you are. Then embrace it. Lean into it. Own it. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. It doesn't really matter if you feel like you're playing a role because as long as you keep telling yourself that you deserve a seat at the table, that you deserve your title, that your voice is valid and important, eventually you will start to believe it. A good way to kickstart all of this is to claim your title. Like how I was so hesitant to claim that I'm a poet. Or an artist. What do you do? What are you good at? What excites you? Think about it. Write it down. Workshop how to phrase your replies just right. Imagine having a conversation with a stranger and rehearse how you would answer them if they asked you these questions. That way, you won't be caught off guard. You will feel more confident and self-assured in your title and in your capabilities and less like a child playing dress-up. I still struggle with this, but baby steps, baby steps. So some final thoughts before we wrap up. It is comforting to know that we are not alone in this, that almost everyone, 70% of people, have gone through some sort of, some form of self-doubt and fear of failure. Unless you're a narcissist, in which case, congratulations on your ego. Can't relate, but I'm happy for you. I think we should normalize saying, I don't know. I wasn't aware of that. Thank you for telling me. And I think we should normalize failure. 
we view everything through the lens of social media these days. And like I said before, social media is not an accurate portrayal of a person's life. It is a highlight reel. And I know it's only natural to want to share happy moments with your friends and family and followers, but maybe we should try to share the vulnerable moments too. The fuck-ups and the mistakes. Maybe social media influencers and celebrities should be more transparent with the content they publish. Or maybe we should be more mindful of how we consume that content, bearing in mind that perfection is unattainable. And we're all flawed human beings trying to make our way through this bitch of an existence. But that's probably another topic for another episode. We have officially reached the end of today's episode, and I would like to uh, wrap it all up with a quote by Marianne Williamson. Fair warning, there are some religious overtones in this quote, so to all the atheists or non-believers out there, don't say I didn't warn you. It's just a really lovely quote which I feel is relevant to today's topic. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And that's it, guys. Uh, As always, thanks for listening. And stay safe, everyone.